Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome to another episode of Insidious Inspirations. Our show is possible thanks to listeners like you. So I want to take a quick moment and thank our first few patrons, namely Matt Griselda, Nick Harris, and Brandon Santana. Thanks guys, your support means the world and it helps us do what we do. If you enjoy the show and you want to get access to ad-free and uninterrupted episodes, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. That's insidious, P-O-D. There's also a link in our description below. And in the coming month, we'll also have our first bonus episode for patrons coming uh, as soon as we can make it, which is to say expected about mid-June. But more information on that as it develops. And without further ado this week's episode. In 2002, a psychological horror movie called The Mothman Prophecies hit theaters across the country. Directed by Mark Pellington and starring Richard Gere and Laura Linney, the movie told the story of how life in the sleepy West Virginia town of Point Pleasant became a surreal nightmare after a series of strange visitations. And at the end of all these supernatural phenomena, another terrible tragedy occurred taking the lives of 36 people. The film makes no secret of the fact that it's based on a true story, as well as a book of the same name by author and UFOlogist John Keel, but there are several key differences. For starters, all of this really took place in a 13-month period across 1966 and 1967, not in the early 2000s. 46 people were actually killed in the terrible tragedy that took place in Point Pleasant, not 36. And most importantly of all, the truth of what supposedly happened there is far stranger and more terrifying than a movie could ever be. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. The series of supernatural events that occurred in Point Pleasant was anything but straightforward. The story involved UFOs, missing and mutilated pets, inexplicable illnesses, frightening phone calls, ultra-terrestrials, the men in black, and of course, the iconic flying apparition known as Mothman. All of this leading up to one horrible incident that would claim 46 innocent lives. But people die in terrible accidents every day, so why all the paranormal fanfare in the Ohio Valley? What attracted the attention of all these strange and mysterious beings to this quaint little town? Before everything that transpired there in 66 and 67, Point Pleasant seemed to be a typical slice of Americana. It sat close to the border, between West Virginia and Ohio, connecting the Kanawha and Ohio rivers. It was the kind of town where people knew each other and weren't afraid to leave their doors unlocked at night. The kind of place built on mutual trust. At the time of the incidents, it had a population of around 6,000 people, 22 different churches, and as John Keel would later note, no bar rooms. After the end of World War II, the local economy shifted its emphasis towards a number of chemical manufacturing plants along the Ohio River. People in one of work elsewhere could easily cross the Silver Bridge, a local suspension bridge that had been there since 1928, into Galliopolis, Ohio, and beyond. The town was small but prosperous, with a friendly, well-educated populace living in modern homes and driving modern cars. But, like most idyllic small towns, the history of Point Pleasant wasn't as rosy as the local tourist board would have you believe. That's because, before Mothman and all of his supernatural friends rolled into town, Point Pleasant was synonymous with war. 
The land was originally the home of the Shawnee people, an Algonquian-speaking tribe. However, the Shawnee came under the attack from French and British forces who wanted to claim the area for its fertile land and abundant natural resources. Thankfully, the Shawnee people had a powerful and intelligent leader, a man known in his native tongue as Hokolesqua, but the English speakers colonizing the area knew him as Chief Cornstalk. Cornstalk led the local Shawnee warriors in repelling colonizers who sought to claim their land up until the Battle of Point Pleasant in 1774, where he and a confluence of Shawnee and Mingo warriors were defeated by the Virginia militia. Following the defeat and conquest of the area and the ensuing American Revolution, Cornstalk urged neutrality, believing that entering another act of war with the Virginians would be devastating for the Shawnee. But in 1777, while visiting Point Pleasant's Fort Randolph on a diplomatic mission, he and his delegation were captured and imprisoned. And on November 10th, Chief Cornstalk was murdered by an angry mob of Virginian soldiers in retaliation for the killing of a militiaman by indigenous warriors, leaving just another bloody stain on the area's history. Over a hundred years later, American soldiers were fighting Imperial Japanese troops in the Pacific Theater. World War II was in full swing, and President Roosevelt was in the middle of restructuring the entire American economy around war production. Places that had been hammered by the Great Depression were becoming powerhouses, making vehicles, munitions, and equipment for the ongoing war efforts. And of course, Point Pleasant was no exception. Military contractors tore up great swaths of the Clifton F. McClintic Wildlife Management Area and started building the facilities for underground explosive manufacturing and storage. The contractors built miles of underground tunnels, linking camouflaged factories to huge metal storage domes that colloquially became known as igloos. After World War II, when the place became largely disused, the locals of Point Pleasant started referring to it as the TNT area. And as you'll find with any area that seems secretive and forbidden, it became an extremely popular hangout spot for young people. It was Point Pleasant's Lover's Lane, except with a lot more leftover underground dynamite than your average makeout point. And like all the urban legends you heard as a kid, something about these places is a magnet for frightening encounters, which was exactly what happened on November 15th, 1966, a day that the fans of the 14 will remember forever. The witnesses in question were a pair of teenage couples, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Mallet. The group was hanging out in Roger's 1957 Chevy, looking for other hip young couples also killing time in the abandoned TNT area. But the night was eerily quiet. There wasn't a soul out there other than them. So in the absence of other people to socialize with, the Scarberries and Mallets decided to drive a few circuits around the TNT area before heading back home. They ended their casual drive at a dilapidated power plant down by the abandoned National Guard armory buildings. It was shaping up to be a relatively boring evening until Linda Scarberry pointed out something in front of them and screamed. Roger slammed down the brakes, screeching the Chevy to a halt. That's when they saw the apparition that would soon become a legend, standing near the old power plant in front of them. The first thing that the young couple noticed were its eyes. Two bright red circles, about two inches in diameter, and glowing in the beams of their headlights. These eyes belonged to a tall, dark figure with a pair of massive, bird-like wings folded against its back. Its body was gray in color, and its legs were thick and sturdy. Was it a human in some insane costume? A bird of truly monstrous size? Or something else entirely? All they knew for sure was that they were terrified of it, and yet, they couldn't look away. Its eyes had an almost hypnotic quality rooting them in place. 
The group got their first lucky break when the creature scuttled away, moving awkwardly on its legs back towards an open door in the power plant. Knowing this might be their best chance to escape, Steve told Roger to floor it and get the hell out. Finally broken from their trance, they turned the car around and began speeding towards the exit road. However, on the way out, they saw the entity again. It was standing on top of one of the munitions igloos, just watching them. That's when, without warning, the creature spread its wings and took off. But this wasn't the takeoff of any regular bird. There was no run-up or flapping of wings. It simply floated straight upwards at a 90-degree angle like a helicopter, then began soaring after the Chevy. Roger gave it his all, driving onto Route 62 and quickly accelerating to around 100 miles an hour. But somehow, the winged creature was still gaining on them, getting faster and faster, making what they would later describe as a loud, mouse-like squeaking noise. The creature seemed even larger in flight, with its wings measuring easily 10 feet across. It chased them all the way to the city limits, where they passed the body of a large dead dog on the road. This dog wasn't there by the time they returned with police to investigate the area. Perhaps the creature had enjoyed a quick snack after the teens outran it. They spilled their story to the local police. These were men who had known these kids all their lives and knew they had no reason to make any of this wild story up. That's why, at 2 a.m., they mobilized a few officers and headed down to the TNT area to take a look around. The cops didn't see a thing. But in the days before and after this famous incident, other people reported seeing a hell of a lot. Two days earlier, on November 13th, there was another strange incident in Clendenin, West Virginia. In case the TNT area wasn't spooky enough, this sighting happened in a local cemetery, and the witnesses were a small group of gravediggers plying their trade in the dead of night. The gravediggers saw a huge man-sized figure seemingly flying from tree to tree, though they described this apparition as being brown rather than gray. Initially, people dubbed this creature the bird, however, when the news stories hit the AP wire, one copy editor gave it a different name, the Mothman. Where did this name actually come from, seeing as, other than having wings, the creature in question didn't really seem to have anything in common with a moth? The answer is, surprisingly, Batman. The 1960s Batman TV show starring Adam West in a memorably camp turn as the Caped Crusader was airing and was also incredibly popular at the time. This also led to an increase in its popularity for the comic books and a relatively obscure member of Batman's rogue galleries, a supervillain known as Killer Moth. It's from this minor DC Comics character that the Mothman gets its iconic name. And soon enough, the Mothman story was the biggest thing in West Virginia. But the strange phenomena taking place around West Virginia and Point Pleasant especially were only just getting started. By November 16th, the TNT area was flooded with curious townfolk, all of whom wanted to get a first-hand look at the Mothman and become part of the story. Plenty even came with guns, hoping to tag and bag the creature themselves. Mrs. Marcella Bennett and her infant daughter Tina would be the next ones to have a creature sighting. They were visiting a friend of theirs, Ralph Thomas, who lived in a home among the igloos in the TNT area. When they arrived at the home, Ralph wasn't there, only his three children. After briefly chatting with the kids, Mrs. Bennett returned to her car holding Tina. That's when a huge, gray figure with burning red eyes rose up from behind her car. Mrs. Bennett was so shocked by the sight of it that she dropped Tina to the ground, frozen in place by the sight of those hypnotic red eyes. The creature spread its wings and took off straight into the sky like a helicopter once more. Thankfully, Tina wasn't hurt. 
she was just a little shaken up from the sudden fall. More weirdness was going on across the Ohio River on November 17th. Mrs. Roy Gross spotted a UFO outside her window, a circular flying vehicle covered in flashing lights that seemed to dart away at a strange angle. That same night, a local teen was driving around on Route 7 when something attacked and pursued his car. He described the thing that attacked him as a large bird. Remind you of anything? The day after that, November 18th, Benjamin Enochs and Paul Yoder, a pair of Point Pleasant firemen, spotted a giant bird-like creature with red eyes while working in the TNT area. One of them would later say, It was definitely a bird, but it was huge. We'd never seen anything like it. And on November 20th, Another group of teens from nearby Campbell's Creek reported seeing another man-sized, bird-like creature hiding in the local quarry. But it was far from just teens seeing the creature. One elderly businessman in Point Pleasant allegedly saw the Mothman standing on his front lawn menacing his pet dog. He was so terrified by the sight of it that his wife thought he was having a heart attack. And on November 24th, a family of two adults and their two children once again spotted Mothman in the TNT area where they claimed it swooped at their convertible as they tried to drive away. And not long after that, in nearby Lowell, Ohio, Marvin Schock, his kids, and his neighbor, Ewing Tilton, claimed to see birds the size of men flying around outside their homes. And Mrs. Ruth Foster in Charleston, West Virginia, also claimed to spot the creature standing near her porch, describing its face as funny and with no beak. The only feature on the creature's face that anyone could remember was its big red eyes. Meanwhile, one of the original couples who sighted the Mothman, Roger and Linda Scarberry, were experiencing some new, frightening incidents. They were living in a mobile home at the time of their Mothman sighting, and shortly after the sighting took place, they were hearing strange noises at night, described as a mysterious beeping, and something that sounded like a garbled, sped-up phonograph. This got so frightening they eventually left and moved to a basement apartment in the home of Linda's parents. It goes without saying, all of this happening in such a brief period of time was incredibly odd. So odd, in fact, that it attracted the attention of John Keel, a noted journalist, author, and ufologist whose life work consisted of investigating incidents just like this. He was the exact kind of tenured expert you'd want to take on this kind of impossible situation. But make no mistake, when John Keel finally rolled up into Point Pleasant, things were only going to get weirder. Up next, we'll find out about the connection between Mothman and some entities that Keel calls the Ultra-Terrestrials, as well as the even stranger events leading up to the Point Pleasant tragedy. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. John Keel, the basis for Richard Gere's protagonist John Klein in the movie, was a suitably strange man for an independent investigator of UFOs. As a freelance writer, he contributed to magazines, newspapers, TV, and radio shows, as well as writing pulp novels like the classic Are You a Repressed Sex Fiend? and the superhero parody book The Fickle Finger of Fate. He also spent time working for the military as a writer of psychological warfare propaganda, 
After all these other odd literary pursuits, Kiel settled into full-time Fortina, the study of anomalous phenomena like UFOs, ghosts, cryptids, and more, writing for publications like the Flying Saucer Review. He studied a wide range of unexplicable incidents from fairies to vampires and even coined the term men in black. It was all this research that led him down the long and winding road to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and the Mothman case. Kiel had been keeping tabs on the strange occurrences of West Virginia for a while. There was actually another seemingly paranormal case that occurred there just before the first cluster of Mothman sightings, and, incidentally, Kiel believed there was some sort of connection between the two. This was the first paranormal encounter experienced by a sewing machine salesman named Woodrow Derenberger, known to his friends as Woody. While driving late one night, Woody was stopped in his tracks by a flying craft he compared to the shape of an old-fashioned kerosene lamp covered in flashing lights. What initially appeared to be a human being stepped out from the craft. He was a man with tanned skin and a good head of hair slicked back to his head. He approached Woody's car with his arms crossed and his mouth stretched into a broad, tooth-bearing grin. The strange man spoke to Woody telepathically, telling him not to be afraid. Woody would later learn that this man was not human. He claimed to be a being from a planet called Lanulos, and his name was Indrid Cold, another figure who turned up in the Mothman Prophecies movie. Indrid Cold would return to Woody several times with more information about himself and his home, as well as vague and ominous tidings about strange things to come. Meanwhile, aside from publishing his own book about the encounters, Woody's life seemed to get worse for ever having run into Indrid Cold. People he knew and worked with mocked him for sticking to his story, his marriage fell apart, and sinister men in black Volkswagens tried to intimidate him into going silent about what he'd seen. And it wouldn't be long until these same shadowy figures in black Volkswagens turned up in Point Pleasant. Kiel had a working theory that entities like Mothman and Indrid Cold weren't extraterrestrials, beings from another world visiting us, but instead, ultra-terrestrials. These were beings from different dimensions, different spectrums of reality that just so happened to intersect with our own, and the time and nature of these intersections had to mean something. As we discussed at the start of the episode, Point Pleasant had a surprisingly bloody and violent history. Could all that strife be attracting the ultra-terrestrials? Or were they brought here by another strife yet to come? After arriving in town, Kiel was eager to investigate the TNT area for any direct physical evidence of the Mothman's presence. He investigated with a pair of locals, Connie and Keith Carpenter, while local deputy and the Mallet couple, two of the original witnesses, waited outside. At first, it seemed like this would be an uneventful search, until they entered the power station where the Scarberries and Mallets first saw Mothman just under a month earlier. That's when Connie saw something. She pointed at the wall and began screaming and crying, claiming that she saw the figure standing against the wall with big, glowing eyes. Everyone but Kiel also heard a piercing, metallic noise. Connie was removed from the building to calm down while Kiel re-entered to investigate. Once again, there was nothing in there. Could this just be mass hysteria? That's when Mary Mallet's ear started bleeding. Kiel theorized that some sudden change in pressure had somehow caused her to develop a mild concussion, suggesting some kind of atmospheric anomaly. After everyone else left, Kiel continued investigating the area well into the night. That's when he made another peculiar discovery, a space in the TNT area that he took to calling the Zone of Fear, a fixed point that seemed to cause overwhelming anxiety for anyone who walked through it, and only seemed to appear at night. 
Kiel knew, somehow, this was connected to the Mothman phenomenon that was occurring in this area, and that's when the men in black started turning up. People across the Ohio Valley reported visits from strange census takers with tanned skin and dark suits who'd asked them probing questions, often taking peculiar interest in their children. And these were only the tip of the iceberg when it came to strange and inexplicable events. A doctor and his wife reported trying to pick up a strange man walking down the roadside during a snowstorm, only for the man to mysteriously disappear. In January of 1967, Mary Heyer, a woman who was a key player in reporting and publishing the Mothman stories, got a bizarre visitor. A tiny but well-dressed man with a tanned and heavily wrinkled face appeared at her place of work and began asking the typical probing questions. The tactics at play were clear. The messengers of some mysterious force or organization wanted to frighten and confuse anyone who was helping to get these sightings out to the public. At the end of the session, the strange little man took a pen from Mary's office, seeming equal parts amused and baffled by the item. John Keel himself was also a regular target of these shadowy figures, both directly and by proxy. He and a number of other people received bizarre crank calls, sometimes just heavy, modulated breathing down the line. Other times voices that sounded oddly sped up, and in some cases, people were even receiving direct threats aimed at keeping them silent. Prior interviewees also got back in touch with Kiel to tell him his secretary had gotten in contact with them and asked them a number of incredibly strange questions about their experiences. Of course, this was huge news to Kiel because, well, he didn't have a secretary. But it's hard to suppress the truth of people's paranormal experiences when those experiences just keep piling up. In January of 1967, Mrs. Mabel McDaniel was on her way out of Tiny's, a local Point Pleasant diner, when she saw Mothman soaring down Route 62, red eyes blazing. With the morbidly curious eyes of the nation on Point Pleasant eager for the next strange series of events, it was a terrible time to be in the information suppression business. Another West Virginian, Tad Jones, had an encounter with another tanned stranger on the side of Route 62 who was standing next to a bizarre vehicle that Tad had never seen before. When Kiel and Mary Heyer went to investigate the tracks the next day, they made a few strange discoveries. There were tracks in the mud left over. Some were dog-like, but given the depth of the print would have to come from a dog of impossible size and weight. There was one footprint from a naked human foot, and still another that resembled the boots used by the astronauts in the then-recent moon landing. Your guess on what exactly that means is as good as mine. Some attempts at silencing the truth were a lot less benign than ominous phone calls and sending the strangest guy in the office to get a tan and go spew nonsense at a journalist. Connie Carpenter, who'd seen Mothman while visiting the Tianteria with Kiel the previous December, was about to have another terrifying experience when a black 1949 Buick pulled up in front of her home. She'd been hearing strange beeping noises outside of her window for months, but things were about to ascend to a whole new terrifying level. The driver of the car opened his door and called to Connie, asking for directions. Thinking nothing of it, she got closer to assist the stranger, but noticed there was something off about his voice. It was as though he had no accent. No accent at all. He was a man from nowhere. When she finally reached the car, the stranger lunged forward and grabbed Connie's wrist, ordering her to get in the car with him. In the following intense struggle, Connie was lucky enough to escape and ran back to her house while the Buick drove off. She was so scared she refused to leave the house for the rest of the day and the day after. Then, while she was hiding away in her home the next day, there was a loud knock on the front door. Luckily for Connie, the mysterious visitor quickly left, but they'd slipped a piece of notebook paper underneath the door. 
A simple but terrifying letter was written on it. Be careful, girl. I can get you yet. West Virginia was facing a truly staggering breadth of supernatural events. There was, of course, Mothman itself and all the strange phenomena that came with it, from bleeding ears to zones of fear. Then the other ultraterrestrials, like the mysterious injured cold and the strange men on the sides of roads in the middle of the night. Then there were the equally bizarre men in black, who didn't seem to work with any kind of three-letter government agency, if they were even human. But amidst all this, there were still plenty of your more textbook UFO sightings going on. Strange lights in the sky that had even stranger effects on the people unlucky enough to get close. John Keel had spoken to a number of people who were dealing with lingering side effects from their UFO exposure. Some had full-body sunburns as though they'd been laying on a beach for hours on end. Others experienced issues with their eyes similar to conjunctivitis. And, as is often the case with UFO activities, pets were starting to go missing or turn up dead with increasing frequency. And livestock was being found dead and mutilated. In a matter of months, the Mountain State had dealt with enough supernatural weirdness to baffle an entire country. It was becoming clear to people like John Keel and Mary Heyer that this was all building to something. The only two questions were what and when. Little by little, Keel and his associates in town were being fed cryptic clues. And where were these clues coming from? The ultraterrestrials themselves. These communications played out much like what is arguably the movie's most iconic and spooky scene. He would receive strange phone calls from contactees in the night, claiming that the ultra-terrestrials were right there with him, and that they wished to deliver some important messages, specifically predictions, or perhaps prophecies, about terrible things that would come to pass. One strange prediction was that the Pope would be assassinated during a trip to Turkey after a deadly earthquake. The ultra-terrestrial said that the Pope would be killed by a man dressed in black with a ceremonial dagger. Not long after, an earthquake did indeed occur in Adipazari, Turkey, killing thousands. The Pope landed three days later in Istanbul, and thankfully, everything went fine. However, three years later, when the Pope visited Manila in the Philippines, the prediction played out almost exactly, when an assassin shrouded in black attempted to stab Pope Paul, only to be stopped before he could carry out the deed. So, these predictions weren't perfect, but they were often eerily prescient. That's why John Keel was concerned when the ultra-terrestrials, via the contactees, started implying that sinister things would transpire in Point Pleasant during December of 1967. The contactees spoke of a great blackout and that many people would die along the Ohio River. The eagle-eared listeners out there may recall that Point Pleasant had a major chemical factory situated along the Ohio River, and Keel thought that the ultra-terrestrials were heavily implying that some kind of catastrophe would go down there. Because he didn't feel like spending an absolute fortune on hotel rooms, Keel had been splitting his time between Point Pleasant and his home in New York while covering the Mothman and its related supernatural phenomena. It would seem almost like a cruel joke that this all came to a head while he was watching television at home. Expecting the prophecy about the blackout to be true, on December 15th, John Keel was watching President Lyndon B. Johnson's tree lighting ceremony. Given that the part about the Pope's assassination and the chemical factory catastrophe hadn't come true yet, he figured that the part about the major power failure across the United States might be one part of the prophecy to actually occur. However, the blackout didn't happen either. Instead, the ceremony was interrupted by a special bulletin saying that Point Pleasant's Silver Bridge had collapsed. The same bridge Keel himself had crossed over a thousand times coming in and out of that cursed West Virginia town. 
The collapse of the Silver Bridge was one of the worst tragedies that Point Pleasant had seen in decades. While the Mothman Prophecies movie incorrectly states that the reason behind the collapse was unknown, the answer was actually tragically simple. A singular eye bar in a suspension cable failed, causing a chain reaction that destroyed the entire bridge. Its major design flaw was being built without redundancies, so when one part failed, it was like a domino effect, destroying everything. Like a lot of America's infrastructure, the Silver Bridge had scarcely been repaired or updated since its creation over 30 years ago in 1928. In the intervening years, cars had doubled in size and weight, and there were only so many sessions of rush hour traffic that the bridge could take before a tragedy inevitably occurred. Forty-six people died during the collapse, some from drowning or freezing to death in the icy waters below the bridge, others from being crushed to death by the falling debris. Two of the bodies were never found. In the end, if John Keel is to be believed, the ultra-terrestrials had been right all along about the tragedy along the Ohio River. It just had nothing to do with the chemical plants. From the very beginning of its creation, Point Pleasant seemed to be a town that courted tragedies and something about this attracted phenomenon that we could never truly understand. While claims have since arisen about Mothman being cited before other major tragedies, like the reactor overload of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, there have been no truly reliable Mothman sightings since December 15, 1967. While sightings of UFOs and the ever-mysterious Men in Black persisted, the collapse of the Silver Bridge brought the saga of Mothman to its final conclusion. But thanks to Kiel's book and the later film adaption, the legacy of the Mothman is still alive and well today. Since 2002, the Tourism Board of Point Pleasant has held an annual Mothman Festival which is incredibly popular among ufologists and cryptozoologists, drawing in 10 to 12,000 villagers every single year. The town has an official Mothman Museum and Research Center, and, in 2003, local artist Bob Roach erected a 12-foot metal statue of the town's mysterious harbinger of doom. Silver Bridge has also since been replaced with the Silver Memorial Bridge. Human beings will probably never stop looking up at strange things in the sky. But sometimes, you just have to wonder what might be looking back. Tonight's episode was written by Henry Galley. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was the incredible Danny Sweet. And I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit insidious.show.